Breaking Free from Human Domestication, The Power of Rewilding, with Daniel Vitalis, a modern-day hunter-gatherer. Welcome to The Vital Vader Show. I am your host, Dylan Smith. I'm an aerobic health practitioner and holistic health educator who's been in this industry for around a decade and someone who is very passionate about you attuning and aligning with the innate memory that you have, yeah, I'm speaking to you, of true health. And one of the ways you can do this is through, quote unquote, rewilding. Daniel Vitalis, who's our speaker today, is honestly one of my favorite speakers on health, on human anthropology, and on wild foods, and on the concept of rewilding in general. We speak about going out of this human domesticated artificial environments which we've come into and not fully leaving that and scrapping that and just going to go live in the bush but actually creating more of a natural environment a natural lifestyle which enhances our natural health which is health according to the domesticated or, or rather compared to the domesticated type of health that people are developing, which is not very inspiring and not very healthy. Daniel's the host of Wild Fed on Outdoor Channel, which is now in its fourth season of production. For 10 years, he's been lecturing around America abroad, offering workshops that help others lead towards more healthy lifestyle. He founded the nutrition company of Thrival.com in 2008, which is a wonderful premium supplement business and daniel's kindly offered our listeners a competition where you can win some survival give vouchers so listen to the end about that he's also the host of a couple of my favorite podcasts like seriously the rewild yourself podcast and the wild fed podcast he's registered main guide in us a writer public speaker interviewer lifestyle pioneer who's especially interested in helping people connect with wilderness both inside and outside of themselves and connect with wildness after learning to hunt fish and forage as an adult daniel created wildfed to inspire others to start a wild food journey on their own you can connect with daniel at vitalis on instagram and facebook so as i say this is one of my only few podcasts daniel's podcasts are the only few that i subscribe to and actually listen to a lot so this is a great episode i hope you enjoy it i hope you can approach it with an open mind and leave us leave us some feedback on how you feel there's a lot to this topic there's 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 so much more and i highly recommend you check out other daniel's work listen to the end i'm going to share with you how you can win we've got a few thrival gift cards up for grabs so thrival is a shop where he's selling awesome things like wild black walnut protein powder which is hand foraged uh, pine pollen colostrum elk antler which is super interesting so you can try these awesome products i've tried his aphrodisiac taboo chocolate elixir with some aphrodisiac herbs which is fun um and so yeah i want to also mention before we go into this topic of rewilding one aspect which we touch on in the episode is water and i want to emphasize the importance of create getting water from the natural environment as much as possible and if not if you have an inability to get for example, spring water, which is the best, it's the most natural, it's the way that nature's intending water to be, you can get certain technology which restructures water through biomimicry. And it is the study of implementation of natural water purification. So a natural ionization process which provides water vitality and structured water the way that nature intended. The way that I do that 
because I do drink spring water, but I, I can't get so much. I can't bathe in it. I can't wash my vegetables in it. I can't do all this stuff. I mean, I could, but I just don't harvest enough to be able to do that. So instead, I restructure my water through this natural action technologies. So this is a company that I found in the US. I've known them for a number of years. And I can got it. finally, we moved into a house, a first home and other than apartments, and we can access the main of our water. We can access the whole house water system. So what I've done is I've got a natural action water restructuring unit, a vitality unit, and simply it was really easy. I did it with the plumber. I just put it on a main and our whole house, we bathe in structured water. We wash our vegetables in structured water. We wash our clothes. We give our dog water, that structured water. We soak our lentils in structured water, our grains, and wash our dishes. It's so, so much more important. I even believe that structuring water is even more important than purifying and filtering water if you had to have a choice because it maintains that geometrical structure. It's not dead like tap water. You can purify and, and filter tap water as much as you want. It's still going to be dead. We need to revitalize the water. We need that natural ionization process, and that's really the missing link. So I highly recommend you check out this company. This, they've been doing it for a while. They're really good. Um, you can check out vitalveda.com forward slash natural action and you can get 10 or 20 percent off with discount codes vitalveda slash 10 and vitalveda dash 20 but vitalveda.com forward slash natural action drink like nature intended you to drink all right hope you enjoy this episode much love all right daniel thanks so much for coming on the vital veda show it's been a long time coming i've been really wanting to speak to you because especially during covid I, along with many other people, had this inclination towards getting out of systems and becoming more self-sustainable and more in tune with the local environment. And that's exactly what I did. I spent a lot of time in India and I, I do a lot of work there with the local herbs and with my teachers and, of course, in Ayurvedic medicine, but I couldn't do that for two, three years. And mm. I ended up going into the local environment. I ended up adopting kind of another teacher not a very different type of teacher, but this mentor who was very local and he did his own survival missions. He would be for two to four weeks in the bush and challenge himself of how can he be self-sustainable with food and shelter. And I started learning off him. And, and alongside, I started doing that. I was really listening to your podcast a lot. And although it's based in USA, it, it still really triggered inspiration and I learned a lot of things. So I'm so glad to have you. Um, Thanks for coming. I want to first start off with a question that I ask all my guests, and it is, what did you do today? What is your daily routine? <laughs> all right. Uh, let's see. I start my morning uh, right out of bed with uh, meditation. Uh, so I, I sat uh, for about 15 minutes, and uh, there's a bit of commotion with my wife, and she's getting ready you know, for her day, and the dog's running around, so I kind of use those as a opportunity to uh keep bringing myself back to the to the breath into the moment and uh i get done that and i i do a bit of reading uh so you know that'll be like inspirational type self-help type reading that i do in the morning you know just a a little bit a couple pages um right there where i meditate um and then um i start my training for the day so i pushed a 200 pound sled for an hour and 10 minutes wow. today. <laughs> it's snowing where you are <laughs> What's that? It's sled no, in the no, snow? It, no, no, sorry, on turf, you know, like okay. uh, in my gym. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so like a weight sled. 
um, and did some mobility work. And then I uh, had my work day uh, for a while. So uh, a lot of meetings today. Um, mm-hmm. Let's see, I, ran, I snuck off to the pool today and got some laps in. So mm-hmm. I'm uh, developing my open water s- swimming skills, but I'm, I'm really working a lot in the pool right now just to tune up my stroke, you know, so that mm-hmm. uh, I'm more effective outside. So got some of that time in as well. Got some sun exposure, walked the dogs about two miles today. Uh, so, you know, just trying to squeeze in all of those like little activities that, uh, add up over the course of a lifetime, pick some wild strawberries today and uh, ate those, you know, on my walk. That was really nice. It's like a springtime here. Mm. So, um, yeah. And, uh, and, you know, planned my, planned a lot of work. I mean, I'm, I'm on the fourth season of my TV show wild fed. So I'm right now planning, um, you know, quite a few of the episodes. So, uh, you know, work on some of that as well, but, um, I try to work my my work schedule, try to build my work schedule around all the practices that are really important to me. And that's a lot of, you know, movement, exercise, fitness and stuff like that. And of course, time outside. Mm. Yeah, I've, I love the wild, rewild, well, wild fed, sorry, wild fed mm-hmm. and TV show. And I love the combination of the two having that kind of, it's quite a brief show. I think what each episode is like 20, 22 minutes. Yeah minutes and then you've got a more in-depth interview with a lot of a lot of people here you hang out with so i love mm. that there's not yes. many podcasts that i subscribe to and that's one of them the welfare like, oh, thank you i just love the niche aspect of it and perhaps before we get into i got some questions for, around that as well because you just wrapped up your your welfare podcast but yeah let's give more context you know i've i've, I've given a bit of an intro to you before and I, I just like to get to know how you got to where you are now because you have this a journey which a lot of people can relate to, and that is being a vegan for a number mm. of years. And as yeah. you and I both know, it's hard to meet vegans that are doing it for an extended period of time. Mm-hmm. And of course, no culture in history has been vegan for generations and beyond nowhere near even a full lifetime. So... Yeah, if you can share. Yeah, well, I, from early on, I've always been a seeker, you know. I mean, when I was very young, I was, I guess, looking back, I see that I was interested in things that a lot of my peers weren't interested in, you know, existential things, um, you know, religious things, spiritual things. And uh, so as I started to get older, my path started to diverge from the people that I, were my peers. Um, and when I was 16, I I got into vegetarianism pretty heavy, but also got into weightlifting and exercise. And, you know, I had been, uh, kind of a chubby kid, grew up a little overweight, didn't really have, um, you know, didn't have a dad, didn't have a good structure around me for how to care for myself and how to live a healthy life. So, you know, when I was 16, it was like, I wake up call, I'm going to have to figure this out on my own. You know, what am I supposed to eat? It's kind of where I started, like, what's a, what's a person supposed to eat? Wow. I mean, it was very unclear, especially, you know, we're talking almost what 20 years ago. So uh, at that time, you know, we hadn't really entered the food renaissance that we're in right now. I mean, this is for, for young people today, they don't, you know, the, the importance of studying history is to have context. And uh, for a young person today, a Gen Z person, let's say somebody who's 18, they're not going to realize that just before, because they, they're living in this world with all of this amazing organic food and this revolution around food here in the U.S., you know, we're, 
really have food culture for the first time. But you know, 20 years ago, it was a food desert. All you had was commercial products and very, very, there wasn't health food stores like we have today. There wasn't a Whole Foods or anything like that. So, you know, I started off trying to figure out what I was supposed to eat. I got into vegetarianism simultaneous, like to exercise. And, uh, but within two years, I was what, what I personally, you know, I don't want to offend anybody here, but as somebody who was a vegan for 10 years, and, and when I say that, I was also, I was a raw foodist as well. So I've been deep down that rabbit hole. You know, I was a fruitarian for several of those years. So, you know, I've really lived it. So if what I have to say, you know, if anybody's like, oh man, I don't really like hearing what this guy's got to say, just know that I lived it. I was, I lived it all the way. I mean, a hundred percent for a long time. So, you know, I'm speaking from having valid experience, but but I kind of look at it now as almost kind of culty. Like I got drawn deeper in, you know, and I didn't realize how f- my ideas, the ideas that I was subscribing to didn't really have a foundation anywhere. You know, you kind of hit on some of my favorite talking points, which is, you know, that that diet is an un- untested experiment in that, um, you know, it, if everybody comes into your backyard and is capable of digging a four foot hole and somebody's trying to tell you, no, no, like you can dig a a uh, 10,000 foot hole. And you're like, okay, but like no one's ever done it. How do we know? And you're like, no, just trust me. And you know what? Everyone's supposed to dig a 10,000 foot hole. <laughs> and if they don't, they're cruel murderers with no heart. It'd be like, wow, that's a lot to say, given that no one's ever done it. You know, I didn't, I didn't think of it then. And you know, the internet was really new at this time. Social media, again, for young people listening, social media did not exist. Not like it's early stages, like it did it didn't exist. And web pages back then, there was not many. And uh and they were useful back then. Cause when you Google things, it hadn't become like um saturated with products yet. So, you know, now if you're interested in something, like uh let's say you're like, I want to learn how to release my psoas. So I'm gonna look that up. Today, what are you gonna find? You're gonna find all of these promotions for products and for services, but you're, it's going to be very hard to find just clear information. But back then people were just putting in for, we didn't realize the commerce side yet. You know, it was like there was information. So, um, but there wasn't like, um, the same access we have today. So it was in an, in, in its infancy, you still went to the library back then. So I hadn't like been exposed to everything I've been exposed to now, like in particular anthropology, which really shifted my perspective. Cause I always believed, you know, I think there's a couple flavors of veganism and I suspect the flavor of veganism for a lot of the people who'd be listening to the show would be a little bit different. Um, you know, you have the inroad to veganism, which is the spiritual tradition, you know, of it where it's this idea of ahimsa and, you know, you're, you don't want to kill to eat. I mean, obviously that's, not the reality because everything we eat, you know, almost everything we eat has to die first. So, um, so the, you know, it's a bit of a kingdomist idea that only animals have this spiritual value and everything else that we kill to eat doesn't. But, but anyway, there's that inroad, you know, so that spiritual inroad, and then there's also kind of like a health inroad. And that was, I was more leaning on that side, although I sort of had my feet in both of those. But I had this idea at the time that this was the natural diet for people. And I think a lot of people think that like, oh, the people in nature were vegans. And then it was only through the corruption. It's kind of like almost a Christian idea, like the corruption of sin led us to then start to eat meat, you know, and, and, um, but before that, when we were pure, we were vegan. So I sort of had that idea. And then, you know, many years later, 
when I started to encounter anthropology and I started to realize, oh, all of the indigenous people of the world before agriculture, before the influence of modern diets, they were all hunter gatherers. I mean, I heard that term my whole life. I don't know why it never really occurred to me. I think that's why I say kind of, it's almost like cult programming. You know, I knew there were, weren't gatherers. I knew they were hunter gatherers, but I said blocked that out somehow. But eventually that was put in my face in a way I couldn't deny anymore. And it was like, oh, there is no vegans anywhere in the world. It's not like we go find tribes who are uncontacted and it's like, well, they're still vegan because they haven't been in contact with the Western corrupted world or something like that. Um, you know, and that shifted me a lot. And so I sort of reversed my way out of it. So in the same way that I had come into it, which was like, give up red meat, give up white meats, give up fish, give up eggs, and eventually give up dairy. I sort of worked my way backwards, you know, started eating butter and dairy and then eggs and then fish and then eventually, you know, meat. And, um, and the crazy part of this story is that today, you know, I host a TV show where we hunt and gather. And, uh, so I'm a hunter today, you know, and, uh, when I, I don't identify solely, like think of myself solely as a hunter, but it's one aspect of who I am now. And uh, so it's been quite a circuitous journey that's led me here. But uh, in the process, you know, I learned a tremendous amount. And um, I I sort of think that I, I might have turned more people who are vegan back to meat than than almost anybody. I think, <laughs> I've, had, I think I've played a pretty that's strong, right. you know, yeah. I think I'm in the top 10 of people who've done that. And I Again, I know there might be some people who hear that and think like, well, why would you be proud of that? But it's like, mm. um, I think that uh, it's, a, it's a very possible people enter into it thinking one thing and then a decade later find themselves actually very disconnected from life and very disconnected from the cycle of life um, and maybe eating way too many refined carbohydrates mm. because you know they're living on the cupcake diet. <laughs> I'll, I'll add to that of what your influence has been on me. I'm still vegetarian. I've been a vegetarian for 10 years, but I've had a greater insight into hunters and to people like yourself. Like you interviewed yeah. on Wildfed podcast, this woman, can't remember her name, about hunting polar bears, right? What yeah. was her name again? Uh, oh, uh, Susan Crockford, I think. Maybe someone, maybe. Or anyway, she's hunting polar oh, bears. Oh, Jen Sears, maybe. Yes, from Jen Canada. Sears. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. And you know, polar bears and seals, you know, polar bears could <laughs> potentially be the most taboo hunt. And I looked on her Instagram and, you know, of course, she's got everyone having a go at her. And, and it just, and it, well, of course, she's posing with photos of the animals, you know, like what that classical photo that people want to have a go at. What is it called? We call it a grip and grin when you see those pictures, you know. Mm -hmm. So, and then, and I just, in the past, probably I was conditioned to like, oh, I don't know. I don't have any context at all of that person. I just see that photo. I'm like, oh, this guy's cruel. This person is cruel. Look, he's proud of killing this beautiful big animal. But now I'm just like, that is beautiful, the respect. And and I did a similar thing. I was, I tanned, tanned deer skin with my friend who collects local, local hinds that otherwise would be thrown to landfill from the local hunter. And I did a blog post on it and I got all this crazy having a go at me and but i'm like man like do you know how much i was able to connect to the deer through this process and how much i developed a relationship and love for it so mm. i think this it's just so with internet and everything now it's it's so fast to act lack of context 
And and that's what I love. That's why I'm so happy and glad to have you on this show because I want you to, because I want to provide greater perspective, yeah. greater compassion and for people to get out of the narrow-minded and, and open it. And of course, that is seen in, you know, it's seen in many areas, but definitely the vegan. We did another- They're, they're actually some of the most, that's, that's one of the, so I have this belief about um, what I call, you know, uh, isms or, or, you know, my way of referring to ideologies. And what I have found is that when people subscribe to ideologies, eventually, when you follow it for a while, you end up becoming almost the uh, ironic opposite of what you're supposed to be. So, uh, you know, funny. communism, for instance, a great example, because you have all these folks who think, man, what we need to do is redistribute the wealth so everything's fair and equitable. And that's like, that sounds great. And what do all of them turn into? Totalitarian governments that smash all freedom, start killing their own people and become these uh, oligarchies where there's an extreme, even more extreme wealth um, disparity, but no ability to climb the ladder. It's like, it's hilarious. They become the opposite, not hilarious, but you know, I mean, it's ironic. It's um, ironic. So you get that in the vegan world. We're the most compassionate, you murderer, you hate. <laughs> and all of a sudden you have the worst vitriol you ever experience coming from the people who claim to be the most compassionate. And I often think like, okay, well, like, welcome to earth. People eat animals here. There's a billion of them. You know, there's McDonald's down the street, but you're not out front there. You're yelling at me who's trying mm -hmm. to promote health and who was one of you. That's very interesting where your priorities lie. The other thing I'll point out is like, Dylan, how much time do you spend writing mean comments on people's pages? Like probably very little because you're busy creating and doing. Mm -hmm. And I was just talking to my team about this today that there's something in our psychology where when we start to get those hateful comments, we imagine someone who we would think of as our equal or maybe even our better in some sense. Like for instance, I'm a, I've been a public speaker a long time. And as I prepare a talk, I'll often imagine, I don't mean to, but I'll start imagining like as if everyone in the audience is going to be a nuclear physicist or like a highly accredited anthropologist or biologist, and they're going to know so much more than me. And when I get up there, I'm going to make a fool of myself. And then I get up there and, you know, you have regular people and they love what you have to say, but you're like, think of all the worst kind of critics you could get. And when we get those comments, we're imagining these, we forget that, no, the person who's got all the time in the world to comment on your YouTube channel is in, in their mother's basement. Their mom's yelling down the stairs that they need to find a job. And they're still like, you know, they haven't actually stepped out and done anything. And so they hate themselves and, and they're angry at themselves. And so they then redirect that at people who do anything that triggers for them a fear of what they might find themselves falling into. So it's like this weird, you know, we have to be careful when we get those comments. So when, when I get comments like that now, that just tells me, and, and I don't believe in that thing of like, you have to leave those comments up. It's, you know, I don't believe that. I think like, hey, you're in my house. You want to come talk to me like that? Sorry, delete, block. If you want to say something thoughtful, I love when people say, I completely disagree with you. Let me share why. Mm. And we have a dialectic. But yeah. when somebody comes in, they're already firmly established in what they hate about me and how they what they believe. I don't really take yeah. the time to entertain that because I'm too busy, like, and you're too busy, like, creating, sure. you know? And so I, I try not to, 
But there is that irony with vegans. Yeah. And, um, and I was one of those people at one point. So I also have compassion. I feel like I really understand the vegan mindset because I was in it for so long. I'm kind of removed from it now. And I almost, it's like kind of funny to think back on, but, um, I held some pretty strong beliefs. I want to also acknowledge the vegans who are happily doing it and they're just not having a go at anything. Cause I yeah. have a couple of friends Agreed. I can think of, of now and Agreed. You know, there's no one diet for everyone. If you want to be vegan, if you want to have a gut, try it. If you want to be vegetarian, if you want to hunt, like do it and, and respect yeah. everyone else. I think that's kind of what I value about what your content creates for me at least. And, and what yeah. I hope to create for everyone. And I occasionally get comments from people who are like that, but boy, they've been pretty few and far between, but I have gotten them and um, it's been pretty refreshing because there's something about veganism that attracts a more hardcore mind minded person. And so sometimes those folks are, are pretty uptight about it, but, uh, but anyway, uh, they're, they're not typically as violent as they say they will be. <laughs> they never actually come kill my family and eat my dog the way they say they're going to. All right. And on that point, I mean, let's, let's talk about food for now. And I, yeah. I want to talk about the disconnection that we have to foods and just not knowing. And, and for example, me as a herbalist, as an Ayurvedic physician, I'm seeing it with herbs. Like when I go to India and I'm like, po like doing videos and photos of the herbs, I get these other Ayurvedic practitioners like, oh, wow, that's what that herb looks like. I'm like, well, you've oh, been yeah. describing this herb for like years. And just this phenomenon, you, yeah. you said it once beautifully how um, I'm also around a lot of astrologers in, my, in the Vedic tradition and, and how you once said I loved it how astrologers don't really know astronomy. Like now with the apps, you can actually see when Mercury is in Pisces and, and just that yeah. disconnect. And I think the internet yeah. is playing a role in that and, and just this lack of connection to our roots and the things that we are even promoting, even prescribing. I, I love that you brought that up. Yeah, yeah. My, you know, my point being like, you could probably bring most astrologers out and point out Sagittarius and they've never seen it. And it's like, they, they have only seen it on paper represented as a symbol. And so that's a pretty big disconnect. That's a very large disconnect. And I think your point about herbalism is fantastic again, because you get to see the plant as a life form. And that's the key thing is that that plant is a life form. But when you see it dried and chopped in a bag, and that's the only way you know it, you're seeing it as a more of a product. And I don't mean that it's like, a, that's bad. It just means that it's like maybe um, the difference between knowing your mother and then only maybe having seen some of her clothes around the house or something, but you've never met her or you've read letters from her, but you've never met her. It's like, there's, I like this idea that all living things are persons, but most are non-human persons. And so if we're talking about you know, turmeric, it's like turmeric is a being. And in fact, genetically, it's been around longer than Homo sapiens. So we're talking about an elder compared to us. Like we're 300,000 years old. These plants have been around, these flowering plants have been around a very long time. And, and we disregard their personhood so much. So uh, similarly, you know, I think where I always like to start with this is the conversation about what food is. And I'm sure you've heard me talk about it, but for your listeners, you know, I'll often ask the question, what is food? And, and just watch people kind of flail around for an answer, which is amusing. Uh, 
I have the advantage of having thought about it a lot. So, uh, so it's fun to watch when people are sort of like, wow, what is food? Because it seems like this should be the simplest question to answer. I mean, we've all been at eating now for our whole lives. So you think like that would be really simple to answer. But when you ask people, it's actually very difficult. People will be like, well, it's our energy source. It's like where we get calories. It's like, yeah, but what is it really? And what I've arrived at is what it is, is body parts. Body parts with a couple of rare exceptions, which are excretions of, of tissue. So, (laughs) you know, um, if you're eating, you know, like, let's say you got the average person's plate, it's like, okay, there's potatoes. Well, okay. The potatoes are the rhizomes of that nightshade plant. So that's the root structure. So that's kind of like, you know, if I took your legs off, it's like, it's, it's legs, it's, it's roots. That's a body part, you know, and then there's some salad and it's like, okay, well, those are the leaves, the photoreceptive, you know, the chlorophyll sort of solar panels of a plant. Those are its arms, if you will, or body parts, because that thing is a creature. It has leaves. And then there's like the steak. Okay. Well, like that's the, you know, some, some muscle from the musculoskeletal system of that cow or whatever it is. Um, the exceptions I was talking about is like, okay, you have let's say honey is a really interesting one because honey is a tissue. It's a part of a plant. So it's a body part. So it's the, it's the pollen from the flower. So it's like the sexual reproductive part eaten by digested by a bee and then puked up. Okay. So still a body part. It's just been transformed by the bee. I think milk is a really interesting exception. That is a liquid tissue like blood. So again, it is a body part. It's a liquid tissue. So, so basically what we eat, because we can't eat dirt and we can't just live on salt and we can't live on just sunlight or air, despite what some, some of the really interesting charlatans who I have great stories about, uh, claim, uh, you know, I mean, I can't say in India what they've been up to, but everyone I've met who's claimed met a to be a breatharian. What's that? I've met a couple. You know, I've met a couple, but then caught them lying. Um, <laughs> people who are charging hundreds of dollars for workshops, man. I mean, just hilarious to catch them in the act. But anyway, um, you know, we subsist on food and food is made of body parts. And when you realize that, you realize that whether you're a vegetarian or you're a omnivore, I don't like that term. People have been slinging around carnivore. It's like most people are omnivores. Um, you know, we, we, as a species are classed as omnivores. Um, we eat plants, animals, fungi, algae, that's our, everything here is eating each other, whether they're herbivores or they're carnivores or they're like us and they're omnivores. We're all just eating each other. And, um, the reality is most of us are eating creatures, plant, animal, fungal, algal that we've never seen in their intact form. And so like, you know, to your point, most people don't know what a fully grown lettuce or fully grown asparagus looks like. You know, most people, don't recognize. I think most people know what a cow is for sure, but most people don't know what cows come from because cows weren't here originally. We made cows out of another animal called the orax that we, the aurochs that we, that we domesticated. You know, most people know what a sheep is, but wouldn't recognize the wild animal, like the, you know, the ibex that it comes from, or I guess that's the goat. But, um, you know, many of the animals that, you know, we eat, are domesticated from animals that most of us don't, wouldn't recognize. And when it comes to plants, that's where it's more interesting because vegetarians claim they sort of act as if they're more connected, but meat eaters are actually will recognize their own food more quickly than plant eaters will. I mean, you could walk plant eaters by 
all kinds of plants that they eat every day and they wouldn't recognize them. Like how many, unless you've had a garden, how many potato eaters would recognize a potato plant on the surface? I mean, let's face it, like very few, you know, it's like how many olive oil eaters would know an olive tree if it didn't have olives and wasn't in fruit at the time, they wouldn't know it. So um, this is fascinating to me. And what I think it really reveals is that we are so nature disconnected right now because we ourselves are domesticated. So it's it's not just that we eat plants and animals we've domesticated. We are the, we're the OG original domesticated animal. And so we, it all starts with us. Domestication means of the household. And so we left our home in nature for the house that we built. And in that process, we started to create a kind of artificial world around us. And that that's a really key word. I don't just throw that word around artificial. It has a really important meaning because we get the word art from artificial and we get the word artifact from artificial. And artifact refers to uh, something that's been changed and shaped by human hands and human will. So I often will use the example, if you think of a Stone Age people and you think of their industry where they produce stone arrowheads or stone spear points. And if you think of the stone arrowhead and you think of the stone that it was struck from, well, the stone is totally natural, but the arrowhead is artificial, but they're exactly the same material. The only thing that's been changed is one has been shaped by human will. So it becomes an artifact where the rock is not an artifact. So what happened is we've started to create a world where everything around us is an artifact. So if you start looking around your house, it's like, oh, wow, wait, I'm surrounded in this sort of artificial world. Everything is built by human hands or human will. And, and even when we go into our cities and you, know, you see a tree, it's like, well, that's probably a horticultural tree, not a natural tree. And, when the, and the animals in the city, like the pigeons, well, those are feral doves that were domesticated and have now escaped their domestication. That's why they're in all the cities around the world. But like we're surrounded around by things that are artificial. So where, where we're at now is that's led to this really incredible crisis on the earth where we're, we're on the precipice of the loss of all this natural habitat. So everybody's screaming, oh my God, we got to save the environment. And nobody even knows what the environment is because they've never been there and they don't recognize anything in it. And because they don't recognize anything in it, all those creatures that live there are fun to look at on David Attenborough documentaries. But when you're face to face with them, they feel kind of threatening. So you don't know what they are. And so you want to run back to the comforts of your built environment where everything we use and produce damages the wild world. So we're actually have set ourselves at odds by living in a domesticated world. We've set ourselves at odds with the natural world, but the the thing is, is the domesticated world can't live. The natural world can live without the domesticated world, but the domesticated world actually needs, it's like, a, like an umbilicus back to nature because that's where all our stuff comes from. So we're so admired now in our domesticated world that we're threatening to lose our natural world. And then we, we talk about how we need to save it, but no one actually, everyone seems to ever want to go there. And that's the real root cause of the lack of action towards yeah. addressing the climate crisis and, and all yeah. the things that's going on is that lack of connection. I mean, you can, you can go to as many lectures and talks and all this stuff, but if you don't have that actual connection, then that's why people have that lack of compassion or lack of understanding and connection. 
Yeah. And I would suggest to somebody, it's like, hey, take mental stock, you know, maybe start writing down what are all the things you eat, but not, not what are all of the manifestations of what you eat, who do you eat? So, cause if you eat corn, let's say, well, you could eat corn as 700 different products, but they're all corn, right? So you could eat it as corn flakes or corn on the cob or high fructose corn syrup in a Coca-Cola, but that's all corn, right? So it's like, okay, well, do I eat corn? I put corn on the list. It's like, what do you eat? You know, the average American eats like 30 things, 30 creatures, um, you know, but they're in the bush, like, um, an Aboriginal Australian probably knows 1500 species. So how much more connected are they than an American who eats 30 things, right? That's one key point. But if you start to list off all the creatures that you eat, like, let's say you're like, wow, I eat a lot of kelp. It's like, okay, kelp is a creature. Put that thing on your list. You know, it's like, okay, well, I eat this particular fish. Okay, have you ever seen it? Because here in the US, everybody eats haddock and cod. They've never seen one. Wouldn't even know it if you showed it to them. So start writing them all down and then make it your mission to go meet those creatures. What do they look like? And like I brought up asparagus earlier, I bring it up because when you see asparagus, it's what that is, is that just a tender shoot that comes up in the spring. And that's a very short-lived stage of life. But the plant doesn't just stay in asparagus. It turns into this thing that looks almost like a fern. I mean, this, this highly pinnately compound leaf that comes off and like feathers out in all directions. It ends up standing six feet tall. You'd never know it was asparagus if you didn't see it grow up or somebody didn't tell you. So, so don't just find those things at the stage you eat them, but start to get to know these creatures. I mean, even if it starts with, okay, I'm going to print off the wiki for each of these creatures and just learn like, where are they? How are they distributed? What's their life history? Like start to get to know who you eat. Cause that's what you're made of. And so no one can accuse the lion of not knowing the gazelle. No one's going to accuse the koala of not knowing eucalyptus, but we can easily be accused of not knowing what we're made of. Cause most cases we really don't. I love it. Great action step for listeners to do. And I'll add to that include water like know where your water yeah, is coming yeah. from even if it's tap yeah. water that you're drinking and maybe you're filtering and restructuring like where do the water, local water bodies i find it fascinating people like don't actually know where the water coming from their tap is from um yeah so i loved how you brought the human into that og of the artificial or artifact environment because it's really like that human is becoming a reflection of what's happening to that pigeon or to that lettuce, those domesticated plants and animals, which are perhaps becoming weaker, um, more fragile. Like that's what's happening with us. As we're becoming domesticated also, we're becoming more fragile, weaker, hypersensitive. We're living longer, well, which is interesting, but not necessarily in greater health. Like, for example, we, we have a thing in our, my wife and I, like we don't buy leafy. We don't buy green vegetables really. Like there's just too many abundance we we forage for us it's easy to forage especially leafy greens and also it's not only about just the fact of sustainability of foraging rather than buying but just the the difference in nutrition in in the how long it lasts compared to what you even get at the farmer's market sometimes my wife likes to go because she doesn't like to forage as much but i say no 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 so it's that domesticated masculine kind of we're going to grow it even organically, it, it makes it, it's not as nice, it's not as nutritious, it's not as weak. And that seems like we're also having the same thing as we're becoming domesticated. 
Yeah. Yeah. I want to point out though on that, that one interesting component is when you look at animals that have been domesticated, um, you have to usually put a fence up because they'll seek to escape their domestication and they'll rewild and become feral in many cases. Um, and you know, most things resist domestication. When you look at, um, what I think we could call the domestication of indigenous peoples or the attempted domestication of indigenous peoples around the world. Because, you know, if you look at the anthropology, the way we'll talk about is we talk about the Neolithic revolution or the agricultural revolution. So it's this idea that there was this massive revolution that took place about 10,000 years ago where we switched from hunting and gathering to farming. I mean, that's a really gross oversimplification because really what happened is a few places in the world that happened and then those places went from egalitarian hunter-gatherer societies to creating city-states. And then those city-states start to grow and expand. And then they conquer all of the indigenous people in their surrounding area, usually enslave them. Um, and then, um, you know, basically pull them in and then uh, grow and grow and grow until they collapse. So that's the pattern. And um, I don't really know of many instances where indigenous people saw how people were farming and domesticating and went like, oh, we're on board, hook us up, we want to do that. It's like usually through subjugation, control, uh, you know, genocide um, and trickery here in the United States, it was trickery, you know, with our reservation system and such. So um, people typically, it's, it's funny, most of the world resists domestication, but domesticated humans seem to keep barreling forward deeper and deeper and deeper. And we are about to go from this era of the built artificial environment I was talking about into what's like a digital environment, uh, which is a, a much greater, uh, much more significant form of domestication. Because all the things you're talking about, which is sort of the way we've weakened ourselves, um, and it's a, it's so interesting to just look at the conversation happening culturally around the world right now. I mean, some of the conversations we're having, they don't even make sense anymore. Um, I'll let people interpret what I mean, but it's like we're talking about biology in ways that don't even make sense anymore when it comes to us. I mean, I you'd think it was a joke. It's like, no, people are serious. Like, we've gotten very disconnected from reality. Mm -hmm. And... It's interesting what you said about we're living longer. I want to touch on that, um, lest people think that's because of domestication, because really that's because of captivity. So if you put a, like most, almost all the mammals in the world live considerably longer in captivity than they do in the wild. So if we take a lion and we put it in a zoo, it will live longer because it's way less wear and tear. It's way, you know, your car, if you bought it, pulled it off the lot into a garage and just kept it in there, polished every day and maybe took it out for a yeah. five minute drive once a week, it'll last a long time. If you run that car every day, pretty hard, sometimes fast, you know, sometimes you don't change the oil. Like Enjoy it. <laughs> yeah. If you use it like it, you, most of us really do, you're going to burn that thing up pretty fast. So similarly in captivity, mammals live lo a lot longer because they don't have to survive. They have consistent calories every day. Um, they don't have threats from, you know, a male lion, let's just say in the Serengeti, once he starts to age and show sign of senescence, he's going to have to battle off 
other male lions who would like to take his position in the pride. And so, you know, you've got threats that come from within your species and then all the threats that come from outside your species disease. So in captivity, you've got all of this really good healthcare. So animals in zoos live longer. That is a little bit different than on the factory farm though, right? Because on the factory farm, you live a pretty short period of time. You still are in captivity. You still have healthcare. You still have a lot of those things, but the goal is to harvest you early, right? Um, I think what humans live in is a bit more like a factory farm for us than a zoo. But I think that what because we can't really go back to the wild in any, not, not all of us, not meaningfully. Um, and if we wanted to, like, let's say you're like, I want to go live out in the bush. It's like, well, more and more it's become obvious. Like, Hey, that's, that's kind of like territory that's already claimed in a way, you know, there's people who've lived there 50,000 years, like, you know, so you might not even be welcome there anyway. So I think what's realistic for us is to start to create more of a zoo around us. That way we can still enjoy these long lives. But see, think about the difference of a zoo. Like in the zoo, the whole goal is that the animal lives a healthy long life. So the health span is excellent. Not the lifespan, the health span. Our health span is actually really poor here. Even though we're living longer, we're living way more of that time sick and infirm. And the reason is because like a factory farm, we're getting harvested. We're getting harvested by pharmaceutical companies. We're getting harvested by, um, you know, the medical system who's got massive bills they need to pay. So it's like they need you to be sick because that's how they pay for the building and the new CAT scan machine. And that's how they pay all the staff that's there and keep the lights on is like they need sick people. Like healthy people don't keep the hospital running, right? So the medical system needs to harvest you. The tax system needs to harvest you. All of the companies selling product needs to harvest you. So what we become is like instead of our meat going into the system the way a factory farmed animal would or our eggs, it's our labor and the money that our labor generates. So we live in kind of a factory farm for people. And so if you ever look around and you go, why does it almost seem like every single possible thing is set up in a way that isn't healthy for us? Like it's so, it would be so much easier. Like I think about television, you know, being on TV I, you know, as somebody who's kind of like a voracious learner, television for me has been an incredible tool and gift for learning. So if I'm like, if I'm interested in a new topic, I will find everything that was ever made on television about that. And I will watch all those things. And that will help me quickly get a good sense of the landscape. What a great way to learn, except that you have to filter through almost all of its garbage. And it's like, that's just an example. Like everything we do, it's like the way we do medicine, bad for us. The way we poison our own water and we poison our own food before we eat it. It's like, why are we doing all this? And then you go like, oh, I get it now. On a factory farm, you don't care about the conditions the animal are in because you're going to kill them in two years, maybe a year, maybe six months. These animals aren't going to live long, so you don't care. And that's kind of how we've set our system up. So I think what we could do is kind of turn this more to a zoo. So if you think about a zoo, on the zoo, you know, you're thinking if you've got a, a zebra on the zoo, you're going to try to set up an environment, an enclosure that is like what the zebra would naturally live in. But in the factory farm, you don't do that. You don't care what it's like. You know, in the zoo, you're going to try to find foods that are like what that zebra would eat in the wild. But in a farm, doesn't matter. Feed them corn. You're going to harvest them in two years. They don't need to live long. So 
we could turn this built environment into a zoo where everything started to be like, we have clean water and food that we're biologically adapted to. And we don't spend all day sitting and we, we get all that exercise and the community's built in. We could set this up to be a zoo, but we've been letting ourselves get kind of factory farmed for a while. And it's kind of one of the greatest scams of all time. So I, I think that's a, an important piece of it. But anyway, I think we could still have the lifespan and still have good connections to the natural world. But the reality is too, um, this is an important piece about what you just brought up about lifespan. You, everybody's heard the story that hunter gatherers die, you know, by age 35 or we, you know, our ancestors only made it to 25, 35, 45 years old. It's like, that's not true. And here's a couple things about that. You can't age skeletons past 55 years. So when archaeologists go dig up bodies, it, the oldest ones get called 55. All right. If, if you're going to make averages, you got 10 bodies and they're all old and you're going to call them all 55 and you're going to average them. You're going to be like, wow, these, you know, and keep in mind that infant mortality, the natural rate of infant mortality for humans is about 50%. I mean, people need to let that sink in because- People hear that and it sounds horrifying. And I personally just want to say too, like I want to add to that, uh, I have experienced a lot of reproductive grief in my life and um, I have many close friends and family who've had reproductive grief. So babies dying at various ages, um, lots of miscarriages. Like I know how painful that is. I'm not being cavalier about that. But we have this interesting cognitive dissonance going on in the world where we think, we need every baby has to survive. And then at the same time, we're freaking out because we're overpopulated. It's very interesting because the, one of the things that kept people from overpopulating in the past, one of the things, there's many things, but one of the things was infant mortality claimed half of the people. And there's a lot of societies, they didn't even name kids till they got to a certain age because you're like probably not going to make it. You know, you look at how hunter-gatherer society sort of allow their children to just do things freely. It's not like helicopter parenting like here. It's like the kids pro probably going to die, you know? Like let's not get too invested yet. Let's see how far they make it. Now, once you reach a certain age, your chances of survival are very good. So, what ends up happening if you start to average lifespan and you got people dying at age 0 over and over and over again and no one can be aged past 55, how old do people appear to be on average? about 35 to think that, Oh, no humans were making it to 60, 70, 80 and 90 is ridiculous. That's ridiculous. Of course they were. Of course people did. That's our lifespan. Of course they did. But lots more of us get there now. But as we talked about, we don't get there with health span. So those last years, you kind of get all of your last money siphoned out of you by the medical system, um, tucked away in a memory hole somewhere you know, because we've lost sort of a, how our community works. And so, yeah, I do think it's kind of like a factory farm and domestication. You know, I want people to remember too, we've gotten rid of, we've been able to overcome many of the health issues that indigenous people dealt with, but we've developed a bunch that they didn't deal with. So for instance, one of the things we know about our ancestors is that they had really good dentition. Their teeth were really good, really strong, almost no cavities in the fossil record. And people are like, what? It's like, well, how many cavities do you think squirrels have or deer have? I mean, cavities are, are bone disease. We didn't used to have that bone disease. We've developed it through this diet we eat today and this lifestyle we have. Um, but we don't have a lot of the infectious diseases we used to deal with. Now, 
Another caveat to that, though, is most of the infectious diseases we deal with today, including the flu um, and, you know, COVID, any of these things, they all have, they all have domesticated animal origins. These things come from cows, pigs, and chickens, right? So when we're looking at swine flus and avian flus, indigenous people didn't have those because they didn't farm animals. But of course, we had lots of health challenges, in particular, infections, broken bones. We've been able to conquer all that, but we've developed all what we call degenerative diseases, which is like, hey, your body is degenerating because domestication is a degenerative process. So it's the opposite of ad adaptation and evolution. It's like a retrograde thing. So we're breaking down. And what we're dealing with is, of course, diabetes, heart disease, neurodegenerative disease, and cancer. And um, you get to live with those for a long time in this society. But those are pretty much not found uh, in natural societies. And so a lot of people, it's funny because it's like, um, what do they call that um, when uh, somebody's been kidnapped and they start to develop a, uh, a love for their captors? It's called Stockholm Syndrome. I think what happens is a lot of us who are domesticated, we have this like Stockholm Syndrome and we'll fight and defend our domestication endlessly, right? Because it's like we want to prove why it's better. And it's sort of like that to me um, because the alternative for some people is like just too shocking to accept, you know? Yeah, I think it's also social conditioning and fear of the unknown because you're yeah. giving this, okay, there's a potential to create more of a zoo from the from the uh, from the factory farm that we're living in. And mm. it's a lot of people I feel it's it's that the, that fear of stepping into the unknown. Like this domestication is the ever repeating known. I'm comfortable, I'm I'm preserving my lifespan, although I've got chronic disease. <laughs> but I loved how you were speaking about creating the zoo as a community because I think as an individuals, we all get that inspiration. Like, okay, I'm going to stop the water system. I'm going to start getting my own water. I'm going to stop the, the food. I'm going to start harvesting my own food or growing my food or foraging. But I, I'd love to hear your take on and, and even your personal experience because that's definitely something that you do from watching all your, your content. Mm -hmm. Yeah, how do we create that you know, on a more community level? Besides living out yeah. on land with 20 people, which, which is definitely sounds great, but not always. So but never easy. works. Almost, <laughs> almost, almost without exception doesn't work. And when it does, turns completely insane. Hmm. I mean, my, so this is a really important piece. I've, I think I'll just rehash the details really quickly. I'm sure most of your listeners are pretty aware of this. But, you know, I think like when we look at the blue zone thing, where do people live the longest? kind of turns out, hey, it's not really that they're eating some special herb or doing some special practice. It's that they have really good community and not much stress and you know a quality lifestyle. But it's not, again, we all know this, when you get those oldest people, dude, every time she lived to 108 and she drank a shot of vodka every day and smoked two cigarettes a day. And you're like, what? It's always like that. Oh, he ate a chocolate bar every single day. And at every time at five o'clock, he smoked a cigar. You're like, huh? But turns out that actually the, the need for communities seems to be one of the key factors in longevity. Now, this was just never an issue, of course, because we're a type of ape and this was like built in, you know, like a, if you have a troop of chimpanzees, well, okay, you have a tribe of humans. Like we, that's our natural 
social structure. And it tends to be something in the area of about 35 to 50 core people in your foraging group and about 150 people sort of extended out from that. And that's why we have, um, I can't remember the name. Uh, there's a name for the, the law. It's like, um, Dunbar's number, I think it's called, which is, um, the idea that you can know intimately about 150 people past that you can't really maintain the network anymore. Like that's your brain's kind of limited because that was naturally the group size. So now we're in these very fractured places and here's what I've personally witnessed. I've been invited to many a community. Uh, and, uh, what I find is that when I was young and I was very naive and I, especially when I was early vegan, I thought if I could, and I was more hardcore than just vegan, you know, I like all these different rules about how I'd live. I thought if I could find people like me who also subscribe to that same thing, we would all just get along perfectly. Like I thought like, oh, like that would, that's all I need. And as I started to find those people, I realized we didn't even necessarily like each other because it's actually not about that we all subscribe to the same ideas. That's not how that works. You know, um, that that's handy if you get along, but you know, it's actually personality types matter too. And when you look at the people who, you know, lived in this tribal world, there was a couple things they had. One is that they had many blood relationships. So these are people who are interrelated or married. They have children together um, and they have a mutual shared need to create survival together. The problem we have today is one, we think if we find people who are in our same lifestyle niche, well, we'll just all get together and do that together. And that's rarely going to work. And second, we don't really have any shared fate. So let's say 50 of us all agree that we all kind of like the same ideas and lifestyle practice. So we're going to go get on a piece of land. Well, the problem is most of us get our money from different places. So if I don't, if you start to rub me the wrong way, what's going to keep me there? It's not like 10,000 years ago where if I go off on my own, I'm going to die. Like there's no going off on your own. There's no like personality dispute means that I'm just going to like, we're going to just split it up. Like that doesn't work. We'll die. So we have to stick together. People don't have to stick together now. So it makes a lot of ideas about community very difficult. And again, if my money comes from a trust fund and your money comes from Bitcoin and this person has a job in town, we all have a bailout option. And real communities didn't have that same kind of bailout option. So that makes it very difficult, I think, for a lot of people to actually create communities the way they, they you know, that so-called intentional community. Um, and I just want to emphasize again, I just find that um, where I find the best community is not with the people that I see eye to eye with on everything. So where I currently get the most community is at my CrossFit gym. Um, not what I expected to have happen. Believe me, I've got all kinds of hunter friends and hunter gatherer friends and people biohacking friends and all these people who live this lifestyle that I like to live. But I don't want to live with any of those people and I don't want to really spend a lot of time around those people most of the time. When I go to my gym and it's a hardcore gym, what we do there for our warm up is more intense than most people's workouts are. So one of the things is, is when I'm there, every person there, even though we come from radically different walks of life, I know that they don't give up when things get hard. That's pretty important. 
because I've been to a lot of these communities where things get hard and people bail real fast. So I know that if that person has to do 150 burpees, they're going to do it. They're going to stick it out and they're going to, it's going to be hard and they're going to feel like they're going to puke and they're not going to want to do it and they're going to do it. So I know if I need to call on that person, man, I'd rather have that person than my like, you know, foraging buddy who I'm not sure if they're going to be able to really be there for me when I need them. You know, um, we come together for a shared purpose, but we all have totally different lives and we're not trying to get each other all be the same or like subscribe. It's just like we all come together for this shared purpose at the gym and then we go off on our own. And that actually for me has been better community than I found anywhere. That's been really fascinating. You know, of course, outside of my, you know, my wife and my immediate close friends and stuff. So, so I find my community there and I have stopped trying to, let me try to say this. I think some people think like if they can create the right community, they're going to be the seed that starts and changes the world. And I personally, I don't want to sound defeatist because I don't feel like I am, but I think certain events are going to have to play out before we actually restart. So it's kind of like, um, there's nothing I like less than like coming in, coming into a space and being like, I'm going to, I'm going to clean up and set this space up, but I'm just going to start over here in the corner and the, and I'm going to work my way through the mess. It's like, no way I need to come in and pull everything out of there, sweep it, vacuum it, take the cobwebs, then start putting stuff back in. I don't feel like we're going to, I think that we, we got some really tough times to go through. Um, we've made a bed and now we got a lie in it kind of situation. I think it's like, or it's like, you're, you're in a plane crash. We haven't even hit the ground yet. And we got to kind of go through some of that before it's going to be easy to start new communities and start to fix the every, I just don't think it's going to happen that easily. So in the meantime, <laughs> I'm looking for what are the pieces that work for me and how do I plug them in? And so, so my gym has become that community because I sort of got really disillusioned with, you know, I spent several years in Canada trying to live in community with people. And it was like, also, I, Lest it sounds like I think everybody else had problems, like I had problems. I brought all my stuff to it, you know? So like we all are coming with all this trauma and these background stories and, you know, we're not related. Many of us aren't even from the same parts of the world anymore. So it's very difficult for us to just try to reapproximate a tribe. So when I see people try to do that, where I see, it's so funny. It's like, you're going to have a more effective tribe on a basketball team than you are on a, you know, or like a football team or a rugby team, than you are just like a bunch of hippies who get together and be like, we're all going to eat carrots together. It's like that stuff never works, but the teams last a long time. Bands last a long time. So I, I think it's not just your lifestyle, but it needs to be a shared pursuit together. That I think that's a really effective way to create community. Ultimately, we need real robust communities again. I just don't think we're ready. I think we all need sort of like a collective therapy first. So with you, we moved out of the city recently and on that we've been wanting to obviously through COVID, it was a very big inclination and desire from us. And my wife was like, should we do land? Should we do more suburban? Should we do community? And, and as I was saying the same thing, I just don't feel we're ready yet that for yeah. that community. We're not developed enough uh, on a, on a not only physical level, but more so, I guess, maturity to be able to have that kinship. Yeah. It's not there. And I love making the communities in the domesticated areas or that we live in and through the kind of in the cities and the towns and through those other channels. So yeah, I love that. 
And I think if we were to experience, you know, it's funny, like with the World Economic Forum, they predicted like, uh, I don't know if you know, they wargamed uh, event 209, I think it was called. They wargamed what would happen if a coronavirus escaped yeah, yeah, yeah. and it got around the world and blah, blah, blah. And then lo and behold, a year later, it happens, right? Their last war game was what if there was a massive cyber attack and the world lost internet? And it's like, mm-hmm. okay, let's say that happens. Something like that, where it's truly catastrophic. Well, communities are going to start cropping up real fast because people are going to need it for survival. So it's not like just tribal people just did it because they were like, man, we just got to band together, man. It was like, no, they had to do it. Like you have to. So we may encounter a world at some point for some reason where communities start forming and they bond strong, but we're all too rich right now. I mean, and I'm talking even the homeless people in California are too rich. You know, I, I've done workshops where I went and lived amongst the homeless people, pretending to be one, you know, like in an urban survival course. Dude, people are living pretty good. <laughs> I'm, I'm serious. Like, these people are making money too sometimes, you know? It's not like they're as down and out as, like, like many homeless people are living better than higher class people lived in the past, you know? So it's like, we don't, we don't have enough need right now. You need, we need that big destruction for the creation to occur, yeah. as you were referring to. So, yeah, and in the meantime, I think we find community in places where we we you know, like I said, for my gym, it's like, hey, people I suffer with, you know, it's like, yeah, those people I trust. Yeah, you know? I love it. All right, well, we're going to wrap up. I just got a few few more things I want to touch on, particularly around foraging because I love foraging and a couple of other yeah. communities love it. And I just want to speak about, or I want to hear your persp- your thoughts and perspective on foraging things other than food. Of course, you started the amazing, um, of course, water's kind of like food, but we've spoken a lot about water on this podcast and we've, we've referenced what you started, findaspring.org, which you know is kind of one part of it, one way to find spring water. But yeah, like whether it's just that, just that foraging and self-sustainability in general, whether it's firewood, like we recently got a fireplace in our house. So it's like, okay, instead of buying stuff, like can we find dry wood? Can we create our own drying systems? Whether it's like, I need to make something, I need a tool or like something to carry my wood in. Am I going to buy something? Or so, yeah, even from, I'll give you an example, which I love. We have sent our herbals prescriptions out to our patients. We post them maybe like 25 a week. And instead of buying boxes, I go to the hardware store where they have all the boxes, you know, that they give to people to use instead of a bag, you know, just take those. So, just, oh, yeah, yeah. I think not, not need to buy boxes, but, you know, or supermarkets that have a lot of boxes for the customers to use instead of a bag if they prefer that. So, just those type of stuff. Yeah. And of course, it can go to yeah. cleanups and looking what you can get for your home. I mean, do you, what, what other things do you like to forage other than food? Oh, that's a really cool question. Yeah. So foraging besides food and water. Um, well, I really, I, I don't want to make, give the impression this is how I live. Cause you know, I live in a regular house and I have a lot of tools, but I, I really love, um, the art of making fire off the landscape, you know, so one of those primitive skills. And so, um, it's always fascinating to me when I go to a place like, what do people use here to build a fire if they don't have a lighter or matches? And so, you know, when I'm in the tropics, it's like, oh, bamboo is the material. You know, when I'm up here where I live, it's a, a tree called northern white cedar and a and a uh, a forb called a horseweed. And the two of those together have a, a low ignition temperature so I can, you know, put a fire together. But it's like, okay, I need a tinder bundle. And it's like, well, that comes from this tree. So I'm very fascinated by that. Um, another one I like is uh, cobblestones from rivers where you're mm. like, I need to break open this nut. 
Mm-hmm. You know, and okay, I can use a nutcracker, but I can also select a tool like this. Uh, so I'm always fascinated by tools like that. Um, I also think it's really cool to know fiber plants. Um, one of the things, you know, unfortunately, I think women are so misrepresented in the archaeological record because men were making stone tools. Primarily men made those and those last in the archaeological record, but women mastered the fiber arts. So that's weaving, baskets, sewing, you know, all that kind of stuff. And a lot of that stuff breaks down in the archaeological record, so you don't ever find it. But but the art of making, you know, fiber arts are very, very old. So knowing a few plants that you can actually harvest fiber and then how to twist those into cordage, just a cool, cool skill to have. Um any ability to, to forge things that can be made into can t- containers is really neat to me because in the era of plastic and even the era of glass, we don't seem to remember how hard it is to get find containers. So when you have like a gourd, for instance, that can be made into a container, I mean, that is like an incredibly useful thing to know how to forage. Um, I always think it's cool when there's something that like we have a plant here called uh, Japanese knotweed one of our invasive species, but after a rain, the little, it's kind of like bamboo and the segments inside will hold water and knowing you can cut that and get drinking water out of that. I just think things like that are really cool too. So yeah, I'm very interested in that. And then I like what you brought up because I had mentioned doing survival courses, you know, living amongst the homeless in in California. A big part of that was how to, how do you create housing? Like what is the good materials to sleep on? How do you find food in the city? You know, how do you, you know, like, how do you make tools? Do you need a defensive weapon? Because that world amongst, you know, you're that's living amongst mentally ill, sick people, like drug addicts and sick people. I mean, you kind of want something. So what's that going to look like? How do you find that? Like, I'm very fascinated by how to put a toolkit together. I really am inspired by Otzi the Iceman, the uh, ice mummy that was found in the Alps and the toolkit, because it was all preserved in ice for 5,000 years, it represents archetypically all the things a person needs, you know? So you kind of need, like, if you're going to go out there and live, you know, you don't need that now if you live in the city, everything's sort of already processed for you. But if you're going to live out in the world, you know, you need a knife, you need a backpack, you need some boots. So it's like kind of, it's kind of fun to learn how, even if it's just you know, I did a, a basket making a back a backpack basket making workshop, and it was like very empowering to know how to build a basket off the landscape. Not that I need to do it, but it just puts something to rest in the mind. So for me, learning how to make tools is just and how to acquire tools, very very cool. Yeah, not only rests the mind, but gives this fulfilling energy and this mental capacity and just that fulfillment like aspect. Um, all right, and. I want to speak again also about like time of processing what you're harvesting because for me, like we love yeah. foraging, but you know, the thing which gets us is is the time, not so much for the forage itself, but for the processing. And and you're, you did an episode on wild fed about wild rice. Like I have not ever harvested wild grain and it's something that I'd love to do because grain is the majority of our diet and most diets. And like it was cool. You, it was the first episode, I believe it was on wild rice and, and bear. And there was some, maybe some other vegetable and like the wild rice that I saw, I'm like, if that's all you got, like that ain't going to last too long. Like how long did that wild rice last you? It's like a couple meals <laughs> with the group. Oh yeah. You're talking about in the episode where yeah, the, of the TV show where you see the yes. jar, you know, I should have, unfortunately 
we that harvest was a lot more than that okay you know yeah so i'm wondering a lot like, more how much grain job. can you get in a wild harvest yeah. because grain i yeah. think is like big. so and it's a lot of work processing I, okay, so grain, isn't it? You're talking it? about when most of us hear the term processed food, we think of food that's poisonous for us, food that's been denatured, food that's lost all its nutrition, food that's in cans, foods that's in packaging. But it's helpful to think of that as industrial food or commoditized food because the reality is, is everything we eat's been processed. So, you know, even if that means when you get an apple off the tree, like taking the stem off, like that's processing. Like when I go out with my wife and we harvest cranberries, every cranberry has a little stem on it. And before I make them into cranberry sauce, somebody's got to sit there at the table and pull each of those stems off, right? That's processing. So that those are minimal examples. But when you start to get into something like wild rice, you know, going out in the canoe and knocking all of the rice into the boat, that's the easy part getting it home, sun drying it to remove all the insects and moisture, then taking all of that and grinding off the hull, well, first heating it to, to parch it so I can then grind off the hull and then winnowing it. This is where the work is. So, so much of human existence all through time has been processing food. That's why when people finally got mechanically processed or commercially processed food. It was like this wonder thing, like, oh my God, processed food. Now we're like, oh wait, like that's maybe not the best food, but it's not really that it's been processed. It's been that it's been industrially produced. But the reality is, man, food processing, most people still do some, right? It's like if you're going to eat potatoes and you're going to peel them, okay, that's processing. But if you were going to go harvest them, that means pulling them out of the dirt getting them home, scrubbing all that dirt away. There's like all this work associated. So like you said, whenever you harvest something, nuts are a great example because nuts come inside of a big hull before, you, you know, on top of the nutshell is that hull. Well, and it's not like you just break that off wet because if you do, it's going to be very difficult to remove. So now you got to dry the nuts. So that's part of the processing. And you can't just throw them in a bucket somewhere to dry because they'll mold. So you got to lay them out just right so that the air can get to them so they can dry. So you learn through trial and error. Okay, and that's going to take some time. And then you got to figure out how you're going to break those hulls off. Okay, that's still not done because you that now you got a shell there. So you got to figure out how you're going to get through that. And if it's something like acorn, which we love to harvest here, well, now I got a 10-day leaching process in cold water to do. So animals are another great example. And, and I think one of the things that is a real hindrance to people in, in doing their own animal foods is like butchering. It's like, that's all processing. And that takes a long time, a long time. So you got a lot of work, whether you eat plants, you eat animals, you've got work ahead of you. And that work, interestingly, I think is, I often mention this as I think that's probably where the origins of music lie. Because if you're in an encampment of people, you know, you have all these tools, like stones are a big part of it, hitting stones, working a mortar and pestle, um, or a matate, you know, like, and you start to have, you got four women over here and they're grinding cornmeal and it's, and there's three dudes over here and they're pounding with stones and it's, well, how long until humans start to fall into rhythms and you start to sing together. And when you watch tribal people process food, it's singing and there's dancing and there's rhythm to it. And that's probably the origin of a lot of our arts actually come out of food processing, um, because we use all these tools. I mean, humans are just so unique in the way that we, there's animals that use tools, but not like us. And so, 
Yeah, I think that's probably an origin of a lot of the things that we do today is in food processing because that's where we spent most of our time. And so now what's happened is, and again, remember I brought up the Stockholm Syndrome. People love, and I I love my free time that I have. I don't want to act like I don't or something, but we have so much free time because we're not processing food now. We're eating the food without any processing, which allows us to eat a lot more of the food because you're slowed down. And when you... If I buy a bag of almonds, I mean, I can just reach my hand in there and eat as many as I want. If I have to crack each one before I eat it, not only are you slowed down, but you also know, oh, that handful is like an hour's worth of work. So I should be more frugal about that. I can't just burn hours away like that so I can just mindlessly indulge. So it slows you down in a couple different ways. But now what's happened is by having other people process the food, we freed up all this time to explore all these different things. And that's great when it's, hey, we're writing and art and music and all that, but it's also like developing nuclear weapons and, you know, iPhones and, you know, like a lot of things that maybe aren't great come out of all that free time too. So um, there's that saying, idle hands are the devil's playground. Like we didn't have idle hands much in the past. Our hands were in the food. And, um, that's a good place for them to be. And when they weren't in the food, they were in making tools for the food or, you know, making clothes or make, you know, so we were, there's one argument that indigenous people had who were hunting and gathering had a lot more free time than us. But a lot of that time was spent around camp producing tools and processing food. So, um, I think that's actually our natural 40 hour work week, uh, you know, was, was doing that with the people you love the people you rely on, the community that you trust with species that you know and are in intimate relationship with in an environment where you know every creature, plant, animal, algal, and fungal that lives there, where you're connected to stories of your ancestors going all the way back and you know you're part of the future ancestors going all the way forward. You know who you are. You know where you belong. And that is a huge contrast to where we're at today. Hell yeah. I love it. That that's the key, I think, because to make it that community event, that relationship event, that event of love and community and mm-hmm. enjoyment. Because rather than you know using your time to work or or yeah. just for someone else, go, go, go. yeah, yeah. So love it. Um. Yeah. So I want to now talk about where you're going now because you you started with the Rewild Yourself podcast, which was a variety of topics, kind of similar to the Vital Vader podcast in the sense you kind of explored health relationships, um, nature. Uh, And then you did the Wild Fed, which I loved because of the niche content. I just love niche stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'll just give a few examples for the audience. It's like making your own sea salt, indigenous whale hunting, as I said, the polar bear episode, about Brood X, which is this 17-year-old cicada one all about ticks, one about wrangling pythons, one about communicating with birds. So I just love that specificity. And um, so that's finally wrapped up. Congratulations on that. Now you're going to a more general podcast, right? Yeah, so I did did roughly 175 episodes of Rewild Yourself and about the same amount of Wild Fed. And um, I'm, I guess I'm ready for a pod. I love podcasting. Man. I love interviewing people. I love this form of media. So, um, you know, and I'm so blessed to have a TV show for, for the niche that you're talking about. So 
that's a show where I get to explore my niche of hunting and gathering and food stories and culinary adventure. So I'm filming the fourth season right now. We'll keep doing that. Um, but I'm gearing up to start a podcast that will be a Daniel Vitalis podcast. In other words, there's no um, niche to it because um, me as an actual person, I've got a lot of interests. And um, with Rewild Yourself and Wild Fed, it was like I was sharing just like one pie slice of my pie chart of interests. Um, Rewild Yourself was broader, as you mentioned, but I, I want to share even more broadly than that. And, um, you know, the last several years I've been trying to stay, one reason I went into those niches, particularly re- with Wildfed, is I wanted to stay out of some of the real divisive conversations that's been happening in the podcast world. You know, it's been a really tough time. Um, and I really wanted to watch how it was all unfolding, but I feel like I have a pretty good handle on it now. And, uh, yeah, I'm just excited to like, um, come back with something where I can go into areas because there would be times I'd want to do a podcast. For instance, let's say I wanted to talk about meditation. It didn't really fit with the brand of wild fed. So I'd be like, man, this guy would be really great to interview, you know, or I personally am obsessed with adult learning. So I'm always taking workshops and sometimes it's like, man, I'd love to have this teacher you know, she's amazing. Can I bring her on the show? But like, ah, she doesn't fit with the brand. So I'm, I'm going to do something that doesn't have that kind of brand focus. Um, and that's just going to free me up to talk about everything I'm interested in and, and to continue to adapt and change. Cause, um, I've, you know, with wild fed, I've, it's been eight years that I've been pursuing that. And, um, you know, I'm kind of, I've kind of learned what I wanted to learn there and I've left enough of it behind. And so I'm ready for the next stage of my life. And, and, uh, but I'll, you know, people continue to hear me out there and, and I'll keep making the TV show as well. All right. Love it. And how do you feel about concluding a podcast, like a show like wild fed and rewild yourself? Because for me, I see podcasts like, cause I'm, this is relevant for us. I kind of feel like it gets lost in, in the internet, in the, you know, the stratosphere of the internet or the podcast stratosphere. Cause I feel books, yeah. they hang around TV shows, even vlog videos. They seem to hang around and give a bit of a legacy. But podcasts, perhaps because it's only audio, I feel like because we're in that position of kind of it's kind of personal question, but we're in that position of kind of wanting to wrap up and go into something more niche, actually. Um, but I just feel like once it stops, it's like finished. <laughs> Not much. Yeah. Really. Well, I'll, I, you know, that's a, there's some valid points there, um, and I think that there's a sense for a lot of people come to a podcast and they don't necessarily want to go back to an old show because there's it's like news. YouTube is like that too, to a degree when you follow a YouTube, you know, channel, a lot of times it's like, you know how it is like if you see a show, something that's pre COVID, you're like, oh man, these people have no idea like what's even about to happen to how the world's going to change, you know, and it makes it like feel like it's not fresh enough. But that said, I get email every day from people who are going back through rewild yourself, you know, shows that are 10 years old and they're like, man, this podcast is really hitting for me. So I keep it up. It's legacy. And with wild fed, when I wrapped it, I thought to myself the whole time I was making it, I thought what I'm trying to do is curate voices from the wild food culture so that when someone like me, cause I've always been into wild food, but eight years ago I was like, I'm going to go full headlong into this hunter gatherer thing. I want to do this. And that meant I had to try, I was looking for this kind of content and there wasn't a lot there. And so I was like, I'm going to gather up all of the voices who I think of as critical in this. And I'm going to curate these interviews and I'm going to leave them behind for someone like me who comes along. And so I don't necessarily need everybody to find it. I'm just leaving it there. There's breadcrumbs for the people who need to find it. And I'll just trust in that. 
Um, what I think tends to happen is people get stuck. There's nothing worse than like a TV show that goes so many seasons that you're like, man, this is getting stupid. Where is this even going anymore? You know, it was so good in those first couple seasons. Um, and I think with the personal brand thing, sometimes people, I, veganism is a great example of this. I knew, I know a lot of vegan teachers who aren't vegan, but they continue to pretend to be because that's their brand. And it's like, man, you're, you're hurting yourself. You're hurting your audience. You don't care about this anymore. There's no passion. People can feel that. And then who's your audience? Who's your audience when your passion's gone? It's like, you still have an audience, but are they who you want to be talking to anymore? So I, I think it's like, when you know it's time, I say be bold and trust that the people who love you are excited to hear about this other thing from you. Um, when I transitioned from Rewild Yourself to Wild Fed, you know, only a core contingent of people came with me, but there were a solid group of people who were like, man, I'll, I'll listen to whatever you have to say. And there was a lot of people who were like, oh, that's too niche for me, which I, I'm excited to get those people back on board with the future show. But like, um, people came along. So I think it's important that when you're speaking in your podcast, it's about something you currently are passionate about and you feel like this is aligned. Cause there's, as you said, when I first did my first podcast, there were so few shows out there, man, it was like an open playing field. It's not like that now, as you know, it's so saturated that if you're not truly there, someone else is, and that show will be more interesting. So you know, yeah, I say, it. if you're feeling that call, man, yeah. go for it. Yeah. Thanks, man. And I'm sure there's other listeners who are in the podcast world who will appreciate that. So, all right, cool. So thanks, Daniel. Of course, if you want to find out more about that as well, yeah. check out Wildfed TV show and uh, Wildfed podcast, Rewild Yourself podcast and stay tuned for the next. Any, anything else you want to mention? Yeah, I'll just say that um, you can find all the episodes of uh, season one, two and three of Wildfed on um Amazon Prime. Mm -hmm. So um, it's behind a paywall for Outdoor Channel, but it is there. So uh, go check us out, get a free subscription to, uh, or My Outdoor TV, you can get a free subscription there, myoutdoortv.com. And you can, you know, get a free week and watch all the episodes, you know, three seasons. And so uh, love your support. Thanks for having me on your show. And, and thanks to everybody who's uh, listened to what I had to say. And if you're listening to this and, and I triggered you with some of the stuff I said, uh, and you're still here, hey, thank you for having an open mind mm -hmm. to hear what I have to say. Dylan, I really appreciate you. Uh, having me on today thank you thanks for listening and I'll, I'll reiterate if you've listened to the end i really thank you especially if it's been a bit triggering for you at, at times i really appreciate your open mind and open heart and so now the competition you want to win we've got up for grabs three sir thrival 25 dollar gift vouchers and the way you can win it is really simple all you got to do is follow both at vital vader and at daniel vitalis on instagram and screenshot this podcast episode where you're listening to it or just take a photo of anything really and share one takeaway you got from this podcast episode either screenshot it or write down the episode and tag both vital vader and daniel vitalis add a link to this podcast episode and you'll be have an entry to win one of the three 25 survival gift vouchers to these premium supplements and for a second entry, you can also leave a five-star iTunes review, screenshot it, and email it to media at vitalvader.com.au. There's two ways to enter into the competition to win this. I'll be honest with you. We do a few of these giveaways on the Vital Vader podcast. And put it this way, the odds of you winning are higher than you think. Really simple. Once again, screenshot this episode, write one takeaway you felt, and tag both Vital Vader and Daniel Vitalis. 
and that's going to enter you into the competition. And for a second one, leave a five-star review, screenshot it on iTunes and email it to media at vitalvader.com.au. This competition is going to close on July the 23rd, 2023. So about one month from the release of this podcast episode. And you've got a good chance to, to try these survival products. I'm stoked to try the the uh, black walnut protein powder, which is the, the most recent. And, and no crap in these. Like Daniel is a purist. He's a naturalist. There's no preservatives. You know, he's got strawberry flavored and vanilla flavored and chocolate flavored colostrum but it's like actually strawberry, chocolate, and vanilla. Anyway, my friend, thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in. I want to also mention, if you enjoy these episodes, I'm going to refer you to some other Vital Vader podcast episodes, which are kind of similar. You can check out with Diego Benetto. We did a for- foraging uh, podcast all about foraging. He's a foraging buddy of mine. It's episode number 106, Foraging for Wild Foods at Your Doorstep with Diego Benetto. And, and that's a great one about urban foraging, but also in the wild. And there's a bunch of them. We got the Essence of Ayurvedic Nutrition, an online course, which is all about the principles of Ayurveda, the principles of natural law. How can you utilize those and apply them to any environment, any substance, any plant, any food, any culture, any tradition? So it's not just Indian food. It's like, okay, do you like to hunt? Do you like to have a vegan diet? Do you like to have a meat diet? Do you like to have whatever? Where in the world do you live? How do you use the principles of nature to understand those substances of food and create a wholesome, nutritious food and diet for you, for your unique self, wherever you live, whatever your unique circumstances are? So have a look at that, the essence of Ayurvedic nutrition. And if you're a listener of the Vital Vader podcast, we're going to give you a, a discount for that. I think it's Vital Vader 10, one word. And that's a great community as well where I, I do answer questions and if you have any of your personal questions, it's a tight community and people share as well. So Essence of Ayurvedic Nutrition, you can check that out on vitalveda.com.au. Those are all the relevant things that I can think of at the moment related to this podcast on rewilding. There's going to be more coming out. I got some with with a mate from Australia who does survival missions and lives off the land and all this, some some more foraging and and, and rewilding stuff. So. Until next time, much love.